before we get to um, going through that, which is going to happen next week, I wanted to step back before we throw out a bunch of terms and, and uh, things that, that may be a little bit radical and different to you. I wanted to just introduce a study on eschatology. There's been a lot of question about what eschatology is. Um, are we in these end times now? Is, are we seeing this? It's, it seems like every day there's a new chapter in Revelation that we see going on outside. So, so how do we interpret this? What is it? What's the purpose of it? And what are the different views? And I'm sad to say this, but I really do think uh, uh, we need to always remember, as we talked about this morning, that the word of God is our authority uh, on all matters, right? Uh, every matter we discuss has to be uh, driven and orchestrated in light of what the word of God says. And I'm afraid eschatology is one of those things um, that has had its influence more in the church from sources that are outside of scripture, uh, for instance, uh, we do this in a lot of different ways. Um, do you know uh, where we get the idea of hell being red and uh, demons looking the way they do and Satan looking the way we do? Really, most of the modern church gets their understanding and pictures of what hell is like from Dante's Inferno, which is a work of fiction. Did you know that nowhere in the scriptures are we told that angels have two wings? And yet, what do you see with angel statues everywhere? We, we get that from the idea of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, but they don't even have uh, two wings. Um, but what, how did we get to this idea or understand that angels have two wings? Well, we, we get it from John Milton in Paradise Lost, a book of fiction. It's influenced the church in that way. And, and I, I really feel like most of what we know about eschatology as a Southern Baptist church is driven or orchestrated more by works of fiction like left behind than it actually is the word of God. In fact, I would argue that if you grew up in, um, in the church in the 90s or you know, lived through uh, the Southern Baptist Bible Belt churches in the 90s and early 2000s, most of what you think you know about the study of end times is formed by that book series which is not the word of God. And so I, I need us to come back and, and really let the word of God drive this. But the other difficulty with this study is, is I really think this may be the one doctrine where you may not be encouraged to be dogmatic about your view. I, I don't think we're supposed to know everything that's going to happen in Revelation. Otherwise, it would conflict what the Bible tells us about the return of the Lord, which is that no man knows the day or the hour. And so it's really, you see how this is difficult to preach and why many people don't preach on it. Because in one way, you are giving a lot of what you believe the word of God to say. But on the other way, in another way, you don't want to be completely dogmatic about this is the way we believe and you must believe in this way, particularly when you get to millennium. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's introduce the idea of eschatology, okay? Uh, if you have your Bibles open, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, um, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 through 4. And we'll start by reading this. Because in the introduction, I just want to remind you of something. It's something I think you know, uh, but I hope you know. And it's this, we are living in the last days. That's, that's biblical. That's an entire biblical view that, that now we are living in the last days. How do I know that? Well, 
You guessed it, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's read those uh, words together. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Uh, Let me just tell you something. Eschatology matters for how we live. And and I want to say a lot of these things in this introduction are going to be things that we have to agree upon, right? The purpose of eschatology. Uh, Sometimes, quite honestly, it can be a scary endeavor, right? Especially when we try and read or study the book of Revelation on our own in a natural reading. It's apocalyptic literature. If you're someone who thinks that studying the end of times is a a fruitless endeavor because of the difficulty in interpreting some of the biblical passages or for any other reason, let's look at what it says at the beginning of Revelation in chapter 1 verse 3. In chapter 1, verse 3 of Revelation, the the book says this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So even in that verse, look at that. God has promised his blessing to those who strive to know more about him through his word, even in the midst of eschatology. So we need to be a people like this, right? A people who strive to have all of our ideas about the end formed by the word of God. John Newton uh, once said uh, this, We are sure that the Lord reigns. The storm is guided by the hands which were nailed to the cross. He loves his own and he will take care of them. Blessed be God for the prospect of a land of peace where sin and every sorrow will be excluded. There we shall have a day without cloud and without night. The sun shall go down no more. Uh, the voice of war shall be heard no more. The inhabitants shall feel no uh, pain no more, shall weep no more, shall go out no more, and then no more unsanctified, and therefore no more unsanctif- unsatisfied desires. Oh, what a state of love, life, and joy when we see Jesus as he is. And by beholding him, we are changed into his image and made like him. This day shall come. This day will come. This day approaches nearer every hour. Your sincere friend and brother, servant and fellow pilgrim, John Newton. And so that's what really at the forefront eschatology is all about. Whether or not you agree or disagree disagree about anything said, friends, you must know this. The end is coming. Be ready. Live as if it's happening tomorrow. Uh, live as if Christ is returning and he's returning now. Uh, that should, should form and shape how you live your day-to-day life. So now that we've seen the introduction, I want to just view uh, the second coming of Christ. Uh, so to begin in our study of the end, we need to know that the Bible promises a literal return of Christ. Okay, A literal return of Jesus Christ. Jesus came once to make atonement for sin, and he will come again to consummate his rule. 
Okay? Jesus uh, it came once, and in the coming, he initiated the beginning of the last days, and then as his return comes, he will consummate his rule. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 27 says this, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this judgment. Verse 28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And friends, this is something, as you see the Bible references that are underneath that second point, that is just throughout all of the New Testament, there's no argument here. This was taught by the apostles. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Uh, the Lord's brother, James, refers to the future expectation of this coming when he writes in James chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Where did these men get their understanding that Jesus was going to return again? Well, it, it appears from Jesus Christ himself. When he's sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them, he says this, he says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. See, the second coming of Christ is often referred to as the day of the Lord or some other similar phrase in Scripture. And it's a phrase that connotes both calamity and judgment as well as salvation, right? This day of the Lord is one that's going to be calamity and judgment as well as salvation. In fact, turn with me to your Bible, in your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 1. I know that's a weird book, right? You're going to pull out Zephaniah on us and I've got to uh, pretend to know where, I, where that's at in my scriptures? Well, I'm right there with you, right? It's somewhere along these. In fact, you'll probably find it more than, faster than I will. No, I found it already. Zephaniah chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 15 and 18. If you need a reference, it's right before uh, Haggai and right uh, after... Uh, no, it's right before Haggai and right after Habakkuk, between the two H's. So you know where those are, right? Zephaniah chapter 1. Let's read verses 15 through 18 of this text. When the Lord Jesus returns, this is what we're told in Zephaniah. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men. And they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Okay, that's a pretty gloomy picture of the Lord's return, right? Um, and yet, at the same time, uh, the, the, the idea here is that the whole world will be consumed by the fire of God's jealous anger. In fact, if you look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, just one page over in my scripture, uh, it says that God says that what he's going to do in the midst of this is he will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. See, the day of judgment for the ungodly is going to be a day of rejoicing for the righteous. 
Well, now that we understand that Christ will come back, the question always is, what is that going to be like, right? What's the nature of the second coming? What is it going to be like, and what can we say about it from Scripture? Well, a couple things. First, there will be a personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. There will be a personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. Jesus will come back himself in his person. Once again, these are things we all have to agree upon. These are things that are non-negotiable in the scriptures. Uh, While this seems self-evident in an evangelical church, it was once popular in liberal Protestant circles to believe that Jesus himself would not come back. Instead, the air or aroma of Christ would come back and an acceptance of his teaching and an imitation of his lifestyle of love would increasingly return to the earth. So it matters that you know and believe this, right? The idea was that then the ethical norms from the Sermon of the Mount would be established and utopia would be enjoyed by all. Well, what's the problem with that? It's not the message that the scripture gives us. The Bible teaches that the incarnation of the Son of God was not his last manifestation in the flesh on the earth. In John 14, 3, Jesus says, I'm going to come again and receive you. When Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, without delay, two angels come and say to the disciples, what do they say? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So the Lord's eschatological return won't be a spiritual coming to dwell in people's hearts and just make them happier and more ethical, but it'll be a visible bodily and personal return. And it'll be a glorious return. Uh, In Matthew 16, verse 27, Jesus tells uh, tells us that Jesus will return in the glory of his Father. It appears this glory will be visible to all. As John writes in Revelation 1, 7, John writes, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Likewise, again, 1 Thessalonians, a passage that we reread earlier from Paul in in chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Christ's return is not going to be done secretly or uh, stealthy. No, it's going to be loud. And it's going to be clear, by the way. It's going to be announced and everyone will know that the Son of God has come. It's going to be a return that's fitting for a king, and and not just a king, fitting for the return of the king of kings. So we must understand this. Secondly, uh, we also see, not only is there going to be a visible, personal, bodily return of the Lord Jesus, we also see that the time of Christ's coming is unknown. And friends, it's just interesting to me, the many years that We can study this and know it to be true, but it doesn't really stop us from trying to predict it, doesn't it? It never really does. You can't get more dogmatic or clear than the Bible of the fact that the timing of Christ is going to be unknown. Scripture does not disclose the time of Christ's second coming. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, my father only. So you've got three pictures there, right? No one knows it, including the angels who aren't even human beings, right? And, and just, so you, just so you get it, my father only. 
So let's ask this question. Why does God not reveal to us the exact time when Christ will return? How does not knowing when Christ will return affect our Christian life? Well, if we continue reading the scriptures in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44, Jesus makes it clear why it is not for us to know when he will return. Look at what he says. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus then illustrates this teaching again with the parable of ten virgins in Matthew 25. He's driving home this message to keep watch. You do not know the day or the hour of his return. But despite this clear teaching, uh, people seem to have an insatiable desire to try and answer the when of the second coming of Jesus Christ. See, this not only on the, uh, the tabloids or uh, the next time some bozo wants people to sell their houses, like, because I can just imagine he's trying to play a prank on them or something, or at the checkout counter, whatever, but also in the teachings of many religious cults, some even claiming the name of Christ. It's not a sign of godliness to predict something with certainty when God says we will not know. That's not godly, it's the opposite. Jesus commands us to watch and be prepared for his return. Yes, of course, we're to be ready as for an event that could happen at any time. But this seems to indicate that it's, it's possible that Jesus could come back at any time, even right now. Now, wait a second, you see. Scripture does not present the notion that certain signs uh, will, present, will precede the return of Christ. Or it does present the notion that certain signs will precede the return of Christ. Isn't that true? We know that the Bible tells us that there are going to be signs. Yes, it's true. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, Mark 13, Luke 21, they all contain Jesus' teaching on signs of the end of the age. Right? In, in Luke 21, 11, for example, Jesus says, And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines, and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But the signs can really roughly be translated and summarized as follows in three sections. We've got signs evidencing the grace of God, right, which is the sign of the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. So in the book of Mark, it tells us about once the gospel is proclaimed to all nations, then I will return. So those are signs of evidence of the grace of God when the gospel is going out to unreached people groups. You've got salvation, the fullness of Israel. Now be careful with your interpretation of Israel. Remember the, the Old Testament Israel is always a picture of the new covenant of the New Testament church there. But the salvation, the fullness of Israel is a, is a picture. It's a sign that's given to us as an evidence of grace. But we also have signs evidencing opposition to God, right? A tribulation, uh, apostasy, and the Antichrist. All of those are signs to rebellion. And then finally, we've got signs evidencing the judgment of God. Wars coming across the earth, earthquakes, famine. So, okay, question. How do we reconcile passages that warn us to be ready because Christ could suddenly return at any moment with passages that indicate that several important events must take place before Christ's return? And that's really the question, isn't it? Well, answer, 
There are some evangelicals who believe that by charting some of the signs that are thought to precede the return of Christ, they can make the statement that since A, B, and C have happened, now Christ can return. And they can name the exact moment when this will occur. Friends, I, I don't think it's going to be that simple. <laughs> and think about this, just in light of the Old Testament. How many Old Testament signs did we have pointing to the Messiah? How many? Several, right? Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, pointing to what kind of Messiah would be. And, and who missed it more than anyone? The people who have the entire Old Testament memorized. They still didn't see those particular signs. And so be careful in your pride of thinking that because A, B, and C, and I see it happening, I know therefore Christ will return. And friends, here's the point. It doesn't, it doesn't make a difference because you should be ready right now. That's, that's how you live in the midst of this. And really that leads us to point three here is that Christians should eagerly, should long eagerly for Christ's return. Do you? You want them to return? I, I, I don't know about you, but I've been praying over the last uh, five months or so more eagerly for the return of Christ. And it's been convicting to me because it, it, it's based solely on circumstances that I don't like right now as opposed to wanting to be with him more than anything else. Do you long for Christ to return? Friends, listen to me. Christ's return is our blessed hope. And so regardless of the specific details of Christ's return, our response should always be the same. We should eagerly desire and long for Christ's return and glory. It's the overriding hope of, a, of the Christian life that this will take place. And scripture is very clear about this. We don't know when he will return, so strive for holiness and stand firm in the Lord. I'm going to give you three texts here. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Brother Corey looked at this a couple weeks ago. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, not all the way, two verses. For our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved." John's response in Revelation to Jesus' claim that he will return is simple and gloriously appropriate. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, he simply says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. 
Amen, come Lord Jesus. Richard, Richard Sibb says this, he says, God reserves the best for the last. A Christian's last is his best. God will have it so. For the comfort of Christians that every day they live, they may think, my best is to come. That every day they rise, they may think, I am nearer to heaven one day than I was before. I am nearer death and therefore nearer to Christ. What a soulless is this to a gracious heart. A Christian is a happy man in his life, but happier in his death because then he goes to Christ to be with Christ. Jesus' return is the event that gives us hope as Christians. It confirms that history is not some despairing cycle, but the story of God redeeming a people to the glory of his name. The doctrine of the second coming proclaims that God is in control and that Christ will come again for his chosen ones. Jesus said in John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So ask yourself, how many times a day do my thoughts turn to this hope? Is this really where my hope is? is do I think about this a lot, often, occasionally, rarely, never? If we're not turning to this hope more often, then perhaps we love this world more than we should. Let us take delight in the promise that Christ will return. Okay, the third thing we need to discuss, and this is the big one. This is the one where all the controversy lies. It's the millennium. Um, there's a lot of difficult topics that we talk about as a church, right? A lot of really hard things to understand and interpret. We talked about election last week. That's a really difficult one. I'm um, thinking about the incarnation, right? Uh, the God of the universe becoming a, a baby, the, the problem of evil, the, the Trinity, right? Trying to explain the Trinity, it, it, all these things come to mind. But this next section of the millennium has its own set of difficulties, so not to disappoint you. The discussion of the millennium, which I, obviously millennium means a thousand years, it originates from the book of Revelation in the first chapter, uh, first part of chapter 20. The question is often asked from this passage, what are the thousand years and when will Christ return with respect to them? When are the thousand years and when will Christ return with respect to them? This is really probably the most difficult that people, difficulty people have with the book of Revelation. So let's go ahead and turn there to Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read probably a big section of this next week too. So I'm just going to read verses 2 and 5 uh, for you today. This is a vision that John sees. Um, there's an angel coming down, and this is what uh, he sees. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection." Okay, you have in your notes there four basic views of the millennium 
that have had prominence throughout the history of the church. Though much have, some have had much a longer an ancestry than others. So let me, I'm really just going to explain them briefly. Um, and, and really that the notes you have there do a pretty good job of, uh, of showing you um, a picture of kind of what they believe in light of the millennium. So let's go through them quickly. First, we've got post-millennialism. Post-millennialism, that's A, by the way. Uh, hopefully you can discern that and match that in your notes. Looking at your handouts, it's the first view. Uh, this view says that that idea of bind, the binding of Satan, that Satan will be bound, um, uh, that through that, that it is, there's going to be a gradual increase in the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel where more and more people will become Christians. Right? The influence of more believers is going to change society so that it will function as God intended, gradually resulting into an age of peace and righteousness. So in other words, the idea post-millennialism is that the millennium, which in their minds is not a literal 1,000 years, is that after this, Christ will then come back post or after the millennium. So that's the idea of post-millennialism, that it's not a literal thousand years, um, that we are possibly in it right now, but we're in it to the, the point where we'll begin to see a growth of Christianity, a growth of the spread of the gospel and the spread of the church um, that will lead to an, a time of peace and happiness and Christ will return after the millennium. That's the view of post-millennium, uh, post-millennialism. Secondly, we have all millennialism. The second view is all millennialism. This view is the simplest, really, and it says that, that Satan's binding will reduce his influence over the nations as the idea of people groups so that the gospel is preached to the whole world. Yet there's a general view with all millennialism, and really the big difference between all millennialism and post-millennialism is that there's a general view that times will worsen in all millennialism. Christ's reign is a heavenly one, and the millennium is equivalent to the church age currently going on, without reference again to a literal thousand years. So that Christ will then return and judge believers and unbelievers at once. So this view says there really, it's, a, it's apocalyptic literature. There's, there's no literal a thousand years. We're in this kind of end age now where Satan is bound because he no longer has influence uh, to have power over people groups or nations. So that uh, as we see the gospel is going forth in that, it's proclaiming you are able now to proclaim the gospel uh, to all the nations, and that Christ is just going to return once, and at his return, the end is going to come, right? At his return, uh, that's it. Christ is going to return, new heavens, new earth, all of it done instantaneously at the return of Christ. That's all millennialism. C, or whatever, three, uh, classic or historic premillennialism. Classic or historic premillennialism. Now, there are a lot of variations to this view, okay? Uh, but it basically states that Christ will come pre or before the millennium, right? That the church age is going to go through a tribulation period. And at the end of the tribulation period, Satan will be bound. And Christ will come back to establish his kingdom on earth for the millennium which is not necessarily even a literal thousand years as well. But the resurrected believers will reign with the resurrected Christ physically on earth during this time. Unbelievers will also be on earth at this time. And 
uh, and most will become believers and be saved even. At the end of the millennium, Satan is loosed and Christ decisively defeats him and, and his remaining followers. Then the unbelievers from all times will be judged and the believers will enter into the eternal state. Now, like I said, there is a lot of variations with this particular view. Uh, but the idea is that Christ is going to return and his return initiates a, a thousand year reign, right? The, the, we'll go through a tribulation period. At the end of that tribulation, Satan is going to be done for. Christ will establish his kingdom. Um, unbelievers on the earth will have an opportunity to come to know Christ. And then at the end is when Satan is loose, bound again, uh, and all unbelievers will be judged in the new heavens and new earth. Got that? All right. Finally, we have dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. This is the one we're most familiar with, and to me, it's the least biblical. Um, although, you'll see in a second that there are many who believe this who I consider brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we have dispensational premillennialism. This is a really, it, it's really a rather recent view uh, it's premillennial, which means uh, Christ will return um, before the millennium. But here, it's that Christ is going to secretly return for believers before the suffering of the tribulation period. And then during the tribulation, uh, the Jewish people will be left to go through it and, and, and will be ultimately converted. It's got a lot of Israel and the understanding of Israel and dispensationalism in there. He will then return for a third time after the tribulation with his saints to rule the earth for 1,000 years. The rest of it then follows the same as the classic premillennialist view. So, that's dispensational premillennialism. The idea that Jesus is going to return in the secret first, and then tribulation will happen. Jewish people will be left to go through it, but ultimately they'll be converted uh, and then he's going to return again another time after the tribulation to begin the premillennial thousand-year reign. So what are we here at Gray Gables? Are we post-mill, ah-mill, or pre-mill? Well, let's just say we're pro-mill, which means this. This is a controversial issue among many evangelicals, but friends, it's a secondary issue, Okay. Uh, our statement of faith declares only that which is a matter of fact from Scripture and is necessary for our unity as a church. So you have the freedom to be postmillennialist, uh, a postmillennialist, amillennialist, uh, historical or classical premillennialist, or dispensational premillennialist. And guess what? We're not going to discipline you here. <laughs> Uh, we're going we're gonna to work together. In fact, there are many great theologians over the years who have differed on these various views. Um, Augustine, B.B. Uh, Warfield, and many other of the great revivals of the past have been held to the post-millennial view. Um, Louis Burkhoff, John Calvin, other reformers have held to an amillennial view. Don Carson, Al Mohler, and Wayne Grudem hold to the classic premillennial view, while John MacArthur is a dispensational premillennialist. I think it would be safe to say that where I really have struggled and wrestled throughout this time has been between mainly two, between all millennialism and classic premillennialism. Those are really the only two that I've found the most biblical evidence for, and I'll let you know which one I'm leaning towards next week as we look at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. But the end comment to make about all these views is that they've all been held by what we would consider to be genuine Christians and great theologians. 
This is not an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, which means your salvation doesn't hang on how you come down on the millennium. The important thing is that all of these views have the similar belief of this. Jesus Christ is returning. Judgment is coming. You and I must be prepared. We must be prepared. And so next week, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and I'm going to give you an argument or a view on what, we, what I'm, I'm leaning towards right now, what I believe in, even in just my study over 1 Corinthians 15 that God has aligned my heart to. Um, but here's, here's, the, here's the beauty about next week. You can come and you're free to disagree with the pastor. All right? That's really weird for me to say, okay? You'll never hear me say that another week. This morning, you're not free to disagree. Uh, the power of the word of God through the spirit of God is the most powerful force in all the universe, okay? You're not allowed to disagree on that. Uh, next Sunday night, next Sunday night, you're allowed to disagree, okay? All right. Any questions, comments? I know it's a Sunday night, not a Wednesday night, but if you have any, happy to hear them. Yeah, Justin, not you. I didn't mean you. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, so dispensational really has its root in stages, um, which, which kind of idea, uh, has an idea that God worked differently in the different stages of redemptive history, right? So there are several different stages. And, and the big view in dispensationalism often has to do with Israel, right? That in, the, in dispensational premillennialism, Israel is, or they're still God's chosen people and the nation of Israel, right? The nation of Israel is still God's chosen nation in that way. Um, and so that has a lot of its roots in understanding the Israel representative of, of what happens to them in the millennium, right? Because we have that promise of, of Israel being saved, and we've got a lot of word pictures and apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation about Israel, but it really matters how you interpret and view Israel through the scriptures. If you view Israel as more part of biblical the theology to the idea of their, their part they played in the overall story of redemption to be a picture and vision of the New Testament church, then it's easier to interpret, I believe, uh, Revelation in that way, that it's always a picture of, of God's church in that way. But the dispensational view, would hold, it really centers around Israel as a nation and as a people will be saved eventually the end times because they're still God's chosen people after his own heart. So that's the, it really is similar with everything you hear about premillennialism besides that, thing, that particular understanding of Israel and the idea that Christ re really returns to earth or comes to earth three separate times. And I'll be honest, those two things are very hard for me to reconcile. There's nowhere in the scripture that really gives us a view of Christ returning more than once. That's, a, that's an unbiblical view in my opinion, but you're welcome to hold it because you may have a different interpretation of Revelation than that. So... That's, those are my struggles with dispensational premillennialism. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. We're still good? <laughs> We're okay? All right. All right. Let me pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, help us keep the main thing the main thing, and that is you are returning. Let's be prepared. Let's use every day as if it is our last day to share the gospel with our neighbor, to encourage somebody to know Christ and to live for you. 
Help us, Lord, in our study as we prepare even for next Sunday night, that you'd help us, give us wisdom in, in seeing your word and understanding your word. And Lord, give us unity even in the midst of this, that we can have the ability, Lord, to disagree with some of these secondary issues and still love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we've lost that in our culture, and we've lost that even in our churches. So help us, Lord, not have any pride, but ultimately uh, be seeking your word in all things as we come to these conclusions. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.